0: Listeners, this is Marcia Epstein on Talk with Me. I am in Lawrence, Kansas. In Lawrence, Kansas, it is October 19th, 2017. My guest is not in Lawrence, Kansas, and it is October 20th, 2017, where he is. How weird is that? We're talking to him tomorrow. My head is spinning already. I think this is so cool. This is my third international guest, um, but this one from much farther away than previously. Um, I've had the opportunity to record shows with Wolfgang Karsten's in Alberta, Canada. I've had the opportunity to record with Mark Statman in Oaxaca, Mexico. And today we move to a different continent, a continent and country of the same name, and that confuses me too. But welcome Brenton Booth from Australia. Now I'm going to tell you listeners, we all may need to listen a little more carefully. I will try to talk a little more slowly so that I don't talk over because of the time lag and all the quality of of audio things that happen between the middle of the United States and Eastern, excuse me, yeah, Eastern Australia. So um, I'm excited, but I may try to be a little subdued in that excitement, (laughs) because otherwise I'll talk too fast, nobody will understand me. Just kidding. (laughs) Welcome, Brenton Booth. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Masha. Great to be on the show. I'm glad to do this. You are uh, a colleague, friends, with several poets who I know, and the wonderful illustrator, whose name I will try to pronounce correctly, he is actually Jana Carlson, Jana, and I will be recording next week, which I'm super excited about, just like with you, because you guys have done books together. You, you know, it's like this is, this is a miracle of technology, I say, from my old-fashioned way. Um, anyway, you are an amazing poet of the epic rights press variety, lots of work in print and online, and so I want my listeners to get to know you, and as I always say, and to buy the books. Yes, do it. Hey, Bren, tell us a little bit of background about you.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I live in uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, I started writing when I was 19. Uh, it wasn't really a natural thing for me. I grew up in an area, sort of a rough area. I guess in America, you'd call it a ghetto. Uh, no one really read books. I've never read a book. And up uh, wasn't until I was about 19, I wasn't doing so well at the time. I was working in a factory as a security guard. a perfume factory, I was doing six-day weeks, sometimes seven-day weeks. And uh, one night, I decided I'd go to Chinatown after work and uh, grab some dinner. And I passed this second-hand bookstore, and I thought, yeah, I might go in there. I've never read a book before. I'll go get some books. I ended up looking at one. I ended up getting about 30 books. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I got some autobiographies, Marlon Brando, Errol Flynn, uh, William Blake, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I just read these books and it was like, wow, this stuff's amazing. Like, as I said, at the time, I was doing things pretty hard. I like, didn't have much of a reason to go on. And, uh, like, I read these books and it was like, wow, oh, this is unbelievable. These people understand me. Uh, these people yes. understand everything. I was just like, wow, you know, i I, I got to start reading. And I just... Um, Got obsessed with reading. I was basically reading a book every couple of days. That was my goal. Wow. You were uneducated. I didn't have a proper education. I went to the worst school. It was like I was ashamed of my education. So I had to read these books to educate myself. And uh, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of how I got into writing. Um, I got that exposure to those books, and I thought,
0: hey, I'd love to do this. And uh, yeah, I just, just started writing. Basically. That's amazing. And, you know, just the way I understood what you're saying is something moved you to go into that used bookstore and buy a pile of books by well-known authors and you hadn't been a a reader before. You you had not been encouraged in your schooling to, to be a reader, but something about that day and you bought these books and realized this thing that you said, that these people understand me, which to me is exactly why I love art for people to really feel that understanding and connection that they may not get other ways, you know, and yeah. In written art, you know, whether it's written art, painting, sculpture, dance, music, there's so many different kinds of arts. But the way they can connect people with experience so that you know, you you, I, whoever the audience is, we know, hey, we are not alone. That person who made this thing gets me and I haven't even said this stuff out loud, maybe. That's that's really amazing. That's very yeah. cool, you know. Yeah. Do you do you have any sense about the timing of that that starting that reading trip? That did you, did, you know, was did you did you even like did you plan it or did it just happen that day that it just seemed like the thing to do?
1: Yeah, it's just literally that day. I just saw a bookstore. Uh, it was like an underground bookstore. I just literally walked past. I had to walk past it to get to Chinatown to buy dinner and i just
0: thought hey i'll go in there buy some books you know uh-huh. yeah so was just by chance really that's cool that's very cool and reading took you to writing to being one of those people who creates poetry in your case that people can connect with poetry that that they realize hey this guy's writing stuff he gets me he he understands me and and that's a pretty valuable experience
1: yeah well um yeah. Uh, well honestly in the beginning i didn't write i didn't think uh-huh. I was smart right uh-huh. so, because of, I, I got a great deal from marlon brando's book songs my mother uh marlon brando We're not sure if, if any if anyone listening hasn't read the book songs my mother taught marlon brando's autobiography great book <coughs> to read um he's a very different person that book, and maybe what you see of you on screen, and deep uh-huh. man, uh-huh. uh, a thinker. And uh, yeah, just reading, especially reading his book, uh, it was just like, wow, he was just saying he's confused about life. And, you know, he's always thought of the outsider and all this sort of stuff. And I really related to that, uh thinking, wow, he's this guy, this amazing guy. And he's got asking the same questions as me, and he feels the same way as I do. So I, I took taking acting lessons, I didn't think I was right, oh, I just didn't think I was intelligent enough. So I took acting lessons, and uh, yeah, that was inspired by Brandon. and I ended up studying acting full time. I did a few plays and stuff like that on television, but um, it really didn't interest me too much. Like, it's very different industries here in Australia. Uh, like, in America, obviously, method acting, but people like Robert De Niro. Marlon Brennan, that style of acting is crazy, whereas over here, it's more the old-fashioned style of acting, and I wasn't really into that, no, that's like Lawrence Olivier, John Gilgood, or that old-fashioned English stuff, and it really didn't interest me, so I didn't go too good, you know, with the acting, and honestly, it didn't interest me too much anyway. Uh, basically, what happened with the acting, one of my teachers uh, said in a class that we should all, all the students should get a notepad, and just start writing in it every day and she didn't specify what she just said just write and uh what ended up happening I started writing poetry and short stories and uh, that's sort of where it came from. I just I was just writing that, and it, it gradually improved and uh eventually after about five years the, the writing got as good as the acting so I was like I'll give this acting stuff I don't want to do this anymore and uh, okay that Kind
0: of writing. That's amazing. So you happened into a bookstore, you bought a bunch of books and related to them and still kind of questioning your your being a, whether you were smart enough to do this. You were inspired, it sounds like by Marlon Brando's book to to study acting and acting led to to writing because of that teacher saying, "Hey, students should write daily." That that's really an amazing journey to me, from you know this young security guard working in a factory, sounding pretty discouraged about what life was, and and this underground, literally underground bookstore started you on a whole different path. That's that's wonderful. And for people who somehow missed the intro of the show. Um, I am talking with Brenton Booth in Australia. So if you notice a little weirdness about the sound, hey, we are spanning a big distance in geography and in time, because once again, the time difference means it's one day for me and a different day for Brenton. And and I just I think that's poses all kinds of questions, but we won't go there today. Because we're talking tomorrow. You're talking to me yesterday. I don't know. <laughs> you know, we're we're saying that where you landed, Brenton, was was to do poetry. And so I wonder if you would share some poems right now to give people a little flavor of your poetry, even though as someone who's read some of your poetry, I realize it's not all the same by any means. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, cool. Well, I'll, I'll read some. And I've got a bit of a variety. Okay. That people Okay. Yeah. Uh, this one's called. Uh, yeah, this one's called ripped off. His face was bright red, and clothes stunk of piss, shit, and years of addiction. And he stood next to the hot dog stand at Wollamaloo, begging for money. It's not for drugs, he exclaimed, like a poor, desperate animal. Everybody walked around him. Some snarled, and others chuckled at him. No one was willing to give him a cent. I took out my wallet and got out everything inside it and handed it to him. Everybody gave me dirty looks. The guy I knew the junkie's name was Bruce. We used to do drugs together many years ago. The money I gave him wasn't really for him. It was for the gods. Oh
0: wow, that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, unfortunately it's a true story that
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> So yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, this one's this one's not as heavy. It's called Searching for Hemingway. The taxi arrived at the hotel in Havana at 8pm. It was raining, though he still recognised it from all the pictures he had seen over the years. He paid the fare and stepped out of the taxi. Three quarters ran for his luggage. He was already carrying it, but the strongest of the bunch eventually wrestled at three. He wasn't sure what would happen. At the front desk, he asked if Hemingway's room was available. $100, said the clerk with a big smile. He later learned that was more than three times what it was worth. The room was quite big for a hotel room with a small balcony with a view of mostly rooftops. The porters wouldn't leave. He gave them each a dollar note. Eat, eat, they said. No, no, drink. Get me drink, he said. They quickly scattered like insane rats. He looked around the room. He thought about his trip from Sydney to here. Would it be worth it? The porters all rented at the same time, each one with the same bottle of rum. He made them sweat a bit, then took all three. He paid each of them and told them to leave. He locked the door behind them, took off his shirt and shoes, and stood on the balcony with an open bottle in his hand. Had his first hit and waited.
0: Wow. Well. There's a, a lot thinking about who Ernest Hemingway was. And so that that poem is one that to me is a great example of how I listen and I can see those words on the page. Actually, I know on your website and, and I can think about those words and, and my images of what that is all about. And also, you know, what I know about Ernest Hemingway and where that poem might continue to. But you let me fill that in myself, and, and that, to me, is part of what really engages me. That's very cool. Thanks.
1: Okay, uh, so this one's called The Book Thief. I was at a party in an oceanfront house. There were lots of people there. One of them had acted in in an adaptation of Raymond Carver's So Much Water, So Close to Home. Everyone was drinking, so we didn't touch a drop. He kept talking to anyone he could in the loudest, most certain voice possible about the film and Raymond Carver. I avoided him successfully until Sarah told him I was a writer. With that, he cornered me and asked if I had read Carver and seen the film. I thought it was the worst application ever made of the Carver story. His acting was terrible. I told him I hadn't. Well, no wonder you are unpublished, he said. I kept him for the advice and got another drink. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe it will get turned into a film one day, and you can ruin it as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> many lives of Brenton Booth. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's cool. Yeah, this
1: one. This one's called Pale Blue Eyes. We used to get drunk. And dance slowly in our tiny lounge room. In gone with little money and bad jobs. Though happy not to be a part of things. Not to be trapped in a false wheel of success that never goes anywhere. Her with an empty canvas and me with an empty page. Hungry and wounded but in love. Individuals together in a world of faceless crowds. Dancing in our small apartment. Not needing another thing. And I wonder if she would remember now the magic, all those afternoons, mornings, and nights, in the large house with full cheeks and bank account, and the kind of partner she swore she'd never need again. My guess is like me, she does her best to forget those special memories, to do nothing now but stink, to remind us of all that got lost uh, Yeah.
0: So you have these very tender poems and you have these like in your face poems. We haven't gotten to those yet. So I, I think that's really great for people to, to get this sense of you you have this diversity in your poetry. And the way that that I experience it, you know, you're saying it's all real life, you know, there are different things, different experiences, different moods at different times, but it's all real life. And I think that's good for people to experience both yeah, to live well, think, and to read, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, that's sort of the idea, you know, like um, give a fuller picture of things, you know. I mean, um, yeah, every 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 feeling is valid. I think sometimes people, they tend to, especially in um, realism, they tend to just focus on the ugly stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, like it can be cool, that's cool. but. You can write about the tender stuff as well, you know, whatever the funny stuff, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all that sort of stuff
0: you write about. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's what I try to go for. Cool. And you mentioned that when you first started writing, you also did some short stories. So my question about that is, do you, one, do you still write some short stories? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, I write everything. Like, um, I don't just write
1: poetry. Okay. I've literally over the past fifteen years, I've written over two thousand poems, I've hundreds of stories, and uh, I've written a few plays and a novella. Yeah. So I basically write everything. I'm I'm not just a poet now.
0: Okay. All right. Because that. Okay. So so you. Because that one question I had was if you decided on poetry, how did you do that? So I want to ask that question differently. Do you know when you have an idea, whether it will become a story or it will stay as a poem? Yeah.
1: Do you, yeah? Uh, yeah, I think uh, my
0: process its a very
1: intuitive process, like. Uh, yeah. right. I don't talk too much about technique. I mean, it's become more intuitive now than what it was in the beginning. In the beginning, mm-hmm. I was technique and stuff like that in different forms. But now it's more I get a feeling inside of myself or lines come inside of my head. And they'll either be the lines of a poem or the lines of a story. And um, I'll literally just let it, let it uh, simmer over inside of me until it's at the point of being written, and then I just write it. I never, I never sit down to write. I don't use a typewriter. I don't use a computer. I use a blue pen and um, notepad. And right. by the time I get to Notepad, it's pretty much finished. Uh, uh-huh. Most of my style, as I said, I just it just works over inside of me. And some of the poems, like I recently wrote a poem that took fifteen years to write, and writing it inside of me for fifteen years. And I recently finished it two months ago. So it all depends. Sometimes a poem will come out very quickly, and other times it will take forever. But it will just be sort of sitting inside of me. It will be a feeling or a sentence or something, and it will eventually come out. And when it comes out, when it hits the notepad, it's basically
0: I love that you use, as you even said, a blue pen and a notepad, that it's very specific. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well I use the same notepads all the time. And uh-huh. I use a hard cover five notepad and I use the same blue pens. And the reason I use a hard cover notepad, I was bought to use. I just was, under the top. I was in this tiny apartment. I had no furniture at all. So I didn't have a table. So I have the hard cover notepads and they allowed me to write without having a table. So <laughs> that's sort of stuck with me. But I just stick to the tradition. I don't want to
0: That's very cool. I would I would love if you have one or you would take one a photo of that. You know whether it's something that's written on that notepad or the pen and notepad. Because that's such an important way that you actually do your writing. That would be that would be cool for, for people to recognize that not everything is on technology. It doesn't always do best that particular way.
1: Oh, I'm anti-technology. I didn't even have the use question about. uh well, uh, it's actually interesting. I recently I uh, put it on the and the first issue will be out of the next issue. Uh, and the interesting you know, putting it together, uh, I could putting together with words, and I've never really used words properly before. I only ever used it as a typewriter, basically, after I've written everything. So I didn't even, even how to use all of Little to change the font and all that stuff. I've never a that before. Page Yeah, it was an interesting experience, you know, i just I uh, don't pay any
0: attention. all Interesting. Different processes for different people. I've had writers who talk about having like a box or basket of things that are notes that are going to become poems, you know, just all different kinds of things that people do to be able to to create their work. And personally, I, I like to write notes on pen and paper. That's part of what I like to do. In general, for certain kinds of writing, and so I, I'm I'm always interested when that's the case for other people too.
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's kind of the me. <laughs> but um, the other thing was that I didn't mention with with writing with pens. For me, it's a psychological thing. It's more organic. As soon as if I sat down at a typewriter or a computer, it would be about a product. And that's what I don't want. I want my pieces to seem like it just blurs reality. I don't want something to look like it's written. So I feel if I just if I just basically uh, write in the pen when the inspiration comes, rather than putting down a time to write, there'll be a different feel to it. It'll feel more real. It'll feel uh-huh. less less written. You know what I mean? And that that that's that's part of the. Project.
0: That's cool. That's very cool. Well, since we've emphasised that you have a lot of different kinds of tones and different kinds of writing and themes, et cetera, in your poetry, I wonder if you would share some more.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, this next poem is called The Writer. Uh, this is actually an interesting poem. It's got a bit of history to it. I recently sent it to Wolfgang Carsten about uh, four months ago. If anyone doesn't know Wolfgang Carson, he's a fantastic writer and he's the uh, publisher at Epicrite Press. And uh, uh, we're we're good friends. We communicate a lot. Um, But uh, I sent him this particular poem and afterwards he sent me a message saying, let's do another book. And uh, that'll be my fifth book with Epic Press. Wonderful. So, yeah. So this this is the poem that inspired Wolfgang, I guess, to want to do another book. Uh, Thought the writer. He moved from Sydney to New York to live like Henry Miller and write the great modern novel like he did. So after a year, became a junkie and still hasn't written a word. She said, "Why am I not surprised?" I said, and slid my hand up her skirt. And told her I would write about this.
0: Ah. Uh-huh. And, and so we're moving into a different direction of your poetry than before. And a whole new book's coming out of that. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh,
1: this one's called Fish Tank. Just after we started going out, she bought a fish tank and three small fish. I've been looking at them for a while in a pet shop, but never bought them because I've been trying to save money. But now you're with me. I'm so happy. I don't care about money. I've given the names Beatrice, Cecily and Beatrice. I want you to have Beatrice. She's lovely and beautiful, like you. She said. I didn't really want a fish. To change the subject. <laughs> Over the next few months, the fish died one by one until there was nothing left but an empty fish tank. And not long after, an empty apartment and three small ghosts. Quite wiser me well, but this one's a little bit different. No, this called no answer. She no longer answers my calls, and the old men sit around small tables in Chinatown alleys smoking cheap, wet cigars. It's hot, the awnings are swimming on the floor, dogs contemplating the Himalayas, government selling guns to their enemies for some tiny profit. I'd buy a sandwich, finish it off with milk, watching the young, strong workmen climb the scaffolding, laughing about the hearts they once broke. Children running for the school bus, junkies bent like spineless trees in the autumn wind, sitting on the edge of the pier, horns honking forgotten songs that only the natives of Papua New Guinea can remember. Easter Islanders worshipping giant statues, North Korea, building bigger, deadly a bomb, Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha. As usual. Can I have some change? she said, Fuck you, I'll Keep walking. The Eskimo can't insist with me and fears and love and hunger. This mess we created, where will it end? I put a coin in the phone, dial the number, listen to it ring again and again and again
0: so we're
1: getting
0: uh, i was just gonna say so we're getting into more that the the harder sides of life you know with that there's a there's hurt there's disappointment there's a variety of things that happen in our experiences and to me you know when i think about that and i think about people listening and reading i i want people to know, you know, this is real life has ups and it has downs and we can move through those. We can make mistakes. We can have bad luck and we can still find beauty in life. And sometimes, sometimes we latch onto the beauty of somebody understanding us, you know, somebody who can say these things that, that we have experienced and thought and felt. And, and then we get that chance to know, okay, so somebody gets this. I, I can move through this. People move through this stuff. And, you know, I think that's so important. And and I, ex- I experience that in a lot of people's poetry, where there are stories that I'm hearing in those words, you know, mm-hmm. stories of experiences. And so I, I really appreciate that quite a lot. Yeah, cool. Um, I've got this poem.
1: This, uh, I was gonna read this poem later, but I'll read it now. I think it's the, I what you some advice for those that need it just remember wounds don't always kill and most death is unknowing suicide the screams can be loud but so can the silence and only we can control that just think of the ants climbing up the table leg on a summer morning or the aging whore smiling at a first customer in weeks. and know that gods do sometimes care even for people like you and me and the greatest tragedy often is simply beginning it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And for listeners, in case you have somehow forgotten who we're listening to, this is Brenton Booth coming to us from Australia. And he has books on Epic Rights Press, including something that's coming up. So this is a wonderful poet to follow, you know. And, and I do make a point of reminding us that it's really cool to to buy the books, to have the books and both support the artists by doing that, the artists, the small press, in this case, Epic Writes Press, but also there's this cool thing about being able to pick up those words on the printed page that you have heard in the poet's voice. You know, you need to be able to look at that and think about that and you read it today, maybe, and you read it again another time in six months or a year. And there are different things that it brings up in you because the world is always changing. We're always changing. And and to me, that's always one of those signs of really good poetry or writing is when it has a lot of meaning at different times in different contexts you know, that, that there are things that it speaks to me now that it, that it won't, or will be different if I, if I hear this and read this again in a year. So, so think about that, you know, both parts about, you know, when I say cavalierly buy the books, you know, so every once in a while, I post a picture of of my bookshelf of special poetry. Um, I do that on the talk with me page. And I think one of those pictures is, is on the page right now, you know, because again, you're, We need to, we need art. We need art. I have no question about that. And artists need to have payment for their work. (laughs) Imagine that. Uh, Even though you can, yeah, you can get a lot online for free, but man, support it and cherish it. So there you go. That's my my PSA for the moment. (laughs) Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So what's... What's the poetry scene like in Sydney, where you are? In terms of, are you face to face with many other writers who are doing things, um, <clears throat> writing works that that really resonate for you, um, or is a lot of your connection more through technology with other writers? Yeah,
1: um, I think Sydney's a very sad place for the arts. I'm not. Not really aware of anyone that's riding well in Sydney. Um, if you are, send me a message. You know, contact me. But I'm um, not of anyone riding well, to be honest. The only other two writers I know in the whole of Australia that write really well is Ben John Smith, of course, who edits Horace Lee's Crash, and George Anderson, who edits Old Monkey. But other than those two guys, I, I don't know of anyone. And uh, yeah, it's more like the people that I admire, the, the writers I like most, it's just through technology uh, that I would um, contact them, you know? So, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing really happening in Sydney. And uh, I think it's, it's kind of good in a way, it keeps you honest, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. um, my friends, I don't have any poet friends, and um, I work a blue collar job. So, uh, it keeps me honest, you know what I mean? Uh, I never have anyone telling me I'm good or anything like that. so <laughs> <that's> a- <laughs> you the like, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so w- what's that about? What What do you think makes their, you know, makes for less, fewer writers or poets, at least, in Australia? I don't know,
1: honestly. Um, there's There's a lot of education mm-hmm. over here and I think there's an emphasis on Trying to write like Wordsworth or someone like that, like trying to write dated stuff. And the only way to write dated stuff is really uh, to be disconnected from it. You know what I mean? To write your tone and your voice. And those guys are great.
0: Music, then, in Australia. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah, well, music's different. You've got, you've got a lot of great great musicians out I mean, these, like Nick Cave and Bad Seed, uh, people like that. But um, you know, just the other arts, the uh, literature, as far as I can see, as far as I know, there's there's you no know, Australian. There's never been a great Australian writer, so you know, it's um, it's it's encouraging in some ways. It's definitely encouraging for me because it's like. Well, no one's written about australia and that's one of the reasons i started writing so i could write about australia, so uh-huh. people know a bit more about australia i know about america because uh-huh. but you don't know about australia because there's never been a writer that's really grabbed your attention well i've never met that writer so the whole thing was that was one of the motivations for me to write write about the country let people know we're just like any other country. We're as screwed up as any other country. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we allow people to know that we're not these imbeciles that walk around wrestling crocodiles and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. You know?
0: Wait, you're you're telling me that you don't daily wrestle crocodiles, Brenton?
1: Well, I, ha- I haven't today. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, actually, there's, a, there's an interesting story there. Um, I used to work at a wildlife park, believe it or not. Uh, so, I used to, from the age of 14 to 18, I worked at this wildlife park. And uh, yeah, my job was to hand koalas to tourists. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: yeah, weird. They
1: had, yeah, they had crocodiles there as well. I went in their pen a couple of times, a crocodile and I remember uh, actually that guy, Steve Irwin, I guess. A lot of people know about him, the Australian crocodile hunter. he was there one day uh, trying to move the crocodile from one pen to the other pen, so I story him in action. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, I, 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 I've, I've, been, I've experienced that sort of stuff. But, yeah, <laughs> honestly, you know, honestly, um, you know, I, would have, I kept right away from the crocodile when he was doing that uh, <laughs>
0: so in terms of australia and you know a little bit more about that i'm just wondering do you you know just getting a sense you know as we're joking about the crocodiles but do you spend time in different parts of your country your continent around people, Indigenous people and other peoples who are part of that country?
1: Well, to be honest, I've travelled uh, more around other countries than this country. Uh, okay. Sort of, you know, I think a lot of states are the same, you really. know I mean, um, I would like to get around it more. But, um, uh-huh. like, um, I have Indigenous friends uh, and, uh, yeah, so um, I have uh, friends that are Indigenous and... Uh, those sort of background. So I, I I hear
0: a lot of different stories from different people. And and I was asking that in part, wondering: Are you aware whether, in terms of their traditions, there is more of an emphasis on storytelling? That that also might include poetry. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm not sure about uh, poetry. Okay. There's definitely an emphasis on. I think they call it the dream farm. It's like their folklore and. Uh, uh, the indigenous stuff, very strong for them, but I, I wouldn't want to talk too much about it because I don't really know much about it.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. But, um,
1: yeah, they ha- uh, um, yeah they they're, they're they're really into that stuff from what I can see. The more traditional
0: like, indigenous people, uh-huh. uh, their, their history and their traditions. You know? That's interesting to me. How long has your family? How many generations of your family do you, or if you know this, have been in Australia?
1: Yeah, I think what we would be for the second generation because my mother's parents uh, were Chinese. They came from China.
0: Okay. And, um, yeah, basically, yeah, second generation. Yeah, me too. Interesting. Do you see a lot of influence of your mom's culture in your writing? Uh,
1: I don't know. Maybe...
0: I'm not sure,
1: as a stereotype, okay. maybe Chinese is very dedicated, I suppose, that's the idea, I suppose, I, I guess I've got a lot of dedication, but um, other than that, not really, you uh, well, you probably read a bit of writing, you didn't know that my mother was Chinese, so,
0: uh-huh.
1: you, know, you know what I mean, like, uh, uh, not really, probably, other than the application, doing, doing a lot of effort into it. Uh-huh
0: because i think about that too like where do we get our influences my my all four of my grandparents were russian immigrants into the united states so both of my parents were first generation americans you know and and as i got to know stories when i could get them out of my mom you know i was interested in you know sort of what that was like what was different you know what what were things that that she experienced of her Parents' home culture and and the culture she grew up in, but in their case, they kind of wanted to hide it. They didn't want their kids to be identified as kids of immigrants. So the grandparents worked. Her parents worked really hard at they didn't speak their native language at home and those kinds of things. So it was it came across more subtly than than her really knowing a lot about their heritage directly. Anyway, that was a side side issue. But but you know, I think that. uh, I guess I've had a lot of conversations recently with people talking about recognizing how some things get passed on from generation to generation. You know that that not intentionally necessarily, but some of our strengths and some of our weaknesses may be similar to to our predecessors. and And so that also makes me wonder, you know you when you started the when we started this conversation and you talked about, your education wasn't very good. You really were not a reader until that day when you were somehow sparked to go into this bookstore that you'd pass by. You know, did did your did either of your parents read, as far as you know?
1: No, not really. Okay. Um, yeah, um, I, I come from a broken family. Uh, basically, uh, my father uh, left. Oh, my parents split when I was seven, and um, I didn't, I, I don't think I really got this from either of them, uh-huh. I think um, like the whole writing thing, my father he supported it, he loved it because I think he would have liked to have done that sort of thing, uh-huh. uh, he very much loved the art, uh, he loved the loved music, he loved opera, um, he, could, he could play in any opera and he would tell you who the composer was and he would tell you what they're singing in the libretto. He loved music, and um uh, yeah, he, he he had a hard background. You know, he had a hard, like sort of the sort of uh, the domineering father, and the abuse, that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, he just never had the confidence to um chase his dreams, and uh yeah, uh, I think uh, that's part of what spurred me with the art thing. Uh, I just made the decision once. Once I started on this thing, once I've been doing it for about a year, my New Year's resolution when I was 20 was you can never quit. You have to keep pushing. You have to, even if no one ever accepts you as an artist, you've got to do it for the rest of your life no matter what. And uh, that really helped me a lot. Uh, I had 10 years of inception, 10 years, before anything got accepted by anyone. So I was getting told for 10 years, you know, good, you no know, good, you know, good. And some of the rejections actually were all like that. I've got a rejection that says yikes, from the magazine. And uh, another rejection said, what is this garbage? But um, that went on for 10 years. And uh, I guess I got strength from my father having seen he, he did do what he wanted to do because he's gone, And there was that sadness that uh-huh. I, I didn't want to do that with my life. I found what I wanted to do i wouldn't give up no matter what you know. no matter how many people
0: tell me why you know it's okay. they can I'm not good it's okay right. i'll keep doing it. it doesn't matter so yeah I, I kind of got that determination well that's cool so there, there's that part you know to, to latch onto that you made that decision at the age of 20 that art was so important that you would never give up on that that you keep doing it and 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 you have and you know i've I don't I, well, every writer I've talked to has many, many, many rejections. and like you, sometimes long periods of rejections. And sometimes the way they they express that is that you get to success through those rejections. You know, that it's part of the process. You know, if you didn't keep on, you would not get to those publications, to those other opportunities. And so the rejections are part of the work, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I think for me as well, the rejections, they taught me a lot. When after I started writing, it is just basic realism. And the rejections allowed me to develop, not allowed me to work on other things. Uh, you mentioned earlier that I do write in different forms. Uh-huh. That was a whole idea. I just worked on different forms. And uh, I had the time to do it uninhibited. Uh, Basically, I wasn't getting published at the time, so I could just experiment. Anyone I wanted to experiment,
0: uh-huh.
1: so that was a great thing. And also, it gave me time to think about: well, what is success as a writer? Is success as a writer team, or is success as a writer having the knowledge that you're something worthwhile? And over the years, I've learned that lesson: that success as a writer is having the knowledge inside yourself that you believe is creating something worthwhile, and everything else is bullshit. Because you see, see Romans all the time, they're terrible, you know, and you know, well, why it's
0: embarrassing.
1: <laughs> you know, that's why it's really wrong, terrible, right, And he's won all the awards. He gets printed in The New Yorker, he gets printed in all those magazines that I would like to get printed in. But the thing is, you know, what is that? That's not success, that's just a lie. So, you know, it's just got that novel. success is believing that you've written something worthwhile. whether it's yeah. published or not it really makes no difference.
0: I like that. Success is believing you've written something worthwhile.
1: Yeah, not knowing because you can never know. We can, only, we can only believe our own personal... We can only think that it's worthwhile. We can't know that
0: uh-huh. it's
1: worthwhile. But, uh-huh. so, yeah, we all have different ways
0: of looking. You know? Yeah. And one of the things that you, being in Australia, with not a huge poetry scene, one of the things that you miss is that opportunity to read in front of an audience, and have people approach you afterwards and let them know how much your your work means to them. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because here, you know, when I think about even young poets, for example, in in my community, um, well, in in a lot of parts of the United States, there are slam poetry teams that compete, and one of those national um, competitions is called Louder Than a Bomb. And so one of my three local high school's has a slam team that has been pretty successful in competition and these are kids who are 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, young young kids and i remember in this in the spring a few months ago i was talking to some of the team members and one of them who who is like 15 years old had already had the experience of somebody telling her how important her words were to them because she was writing about experience that they also had that they weren't talking about you know and it was so cool it was so cool you know so i i i'm sorry that you don't get that direct feedback you know and i'm glad that you that you know that it is success when when your belief is that what you're writing is worthwhile you know i think that's really good but i but i you know i hope there will be times whether it's through technology or other that you really get audience feedback
1: yeah i've got a bit of feedback people contacting me um uh, through email and stuff like that so uh yeah that's, that's pretty nice and uh, yeah, some of, the, some of the guys I hang around with, you know, a lot uh-huh. guys do a book or something. Funny, I showed you a guy recently, he's a heavy dude. I hang around sort of, I was pretty drunk on that, I gave him my book. And then afterwards, I was gone, like, oh, like, oh, why did I do for? And, uh, I didn't see him for a while. The next time I saw him, he was like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Like, uh, yeah. I was avoiding him because there was one particular poem in there uh, that I was thinking, oh man, he's going to read this and he's not going to like it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was cool. I, I mentioned the poem as well. It's like, like um, man, it's all good. You, you, you're very brave, you know, like you're so brave. How could I yeah. criticize anyone who's that brave to, to be so honest? You know? so, just someone that never reads, just someone grown up, you know, fighting stuff like that, hard to and stuff like that. Yeah, stuff
0: like that's good when you get on the temporaries and preach stuff and stuff like that. Well, as we're getting to the last five, six, eight, whatever minutes of the show, I wonder about having you share a few more poems. Yeah. And I'm going to remind people that, This is Brenton Booth. He's coming to us from Australia. If people see the post in social media, I would love to have people send some feedback. Let Brenton know about what his words mean to you, you know? That'd be a great gift since we can't get you in person in our rooms here in the United States where poetry readings are going on. Maybe some people will reach out to you and say, hey, this thing you said, yes. So readers, excuse me, listeners, I'm I'm encouraging that. And now some additional poetry from Brenton Booth. Okay, this is one that's in
1: Los Angeles. Uh, last poll. In downtown Los Angeles, I stayed in a cheap hotel. The room was tiny and had one floor window with a view of a brick wall. The bed was hard and tough for paper, and At about nine on my first night, the phone rang. I thought I was at the front desk complaining about my visa credit. I need to see you the desperate sounding people with them said. He's not he, mate. I don't even know who he is. I don't play games. With I need to see you. Coming up, coming up now. You have the wrong number. It was my first night in Los Angeles, though. I didn't know to But surely this was some sort of scam. I decided I'd be ready, though. I stood next to the door, waiting for it to be kicked in, and I'd pounce on whoever it was. The phone rang a few more times, but I just ignored it. I stood by the door for nearly an hour, then suddenly realized the real problem. He wasn't trying to scam me. He was just lonely, which I understood perfectly. The phone rang again and I picked it up, put it on the bedside table and laid down on the bed. I could hear his voice coming through the receiver. It sounded like a whisper from where I was. Over the next few hours, I listened to every tender word he said, pretending like him that I wasn't alone. Wow. Uh, this one's called One Tough Bathroom. He must have been in his mid-80s and I would see him every day badly hunched and inching his way up Victoria Street. It's a steep surface. It took him over an hour to get from his apartment building at one end of the street to the shops at the other end. But he'd do it without cane or walker or wheelchair or car. He was the toughest man in the cross, maybe the whole world. And when I stopped seeing him, I didn't feel bad. It was unlike most. Never go up Nice. This one's actually from an anthology published by the publisher Pisky's Porch called Resurrection of the Sunflower.
0: Yeah, Vincent van Gogh. Yeah, this is about van Gogh. So, uh, yeah, it's a little bit different.
1: For the outside. I see you now crying in the glass at the sombre, ugly dawn. I see you now watching a beautiful girl with the ribbons in her hair dancing so freely outside on the street. I see you now smiling at the proud fluttering crows hanging on a screen in the afternoon sky. I see you now knowing the names of all the forgotten peasants working in the field. I see you now talking to the enchanting blinding trees. I see you now looking at the masterwork, knowing what went wrong. I see you now turning the small walls of your room into a giant rainbows. I see you now frustrated at all the colours that just won't come. I see you now running from the terror and wondering why no one else can see it. I see you now mesmerised by the starry starry night. I see you now youth preaching sincerity to justice. I see you now laughing at the dizzy yellow sun. I see you now telling the other painters they have it all wrong. I see you now remembering of the of her hand. I see you now drunk at midnight thinking about the bridge, you know you'll one day paint. I see you now crushed flat by rejection, not knowing how many headaches your works will one day cure. I see you now howling the name like a wounded charging bull in an empty forgotten arena. I see you now looking at the day of seeing only night. I see you now embracing your brother and your delicate trembling arms. I see you now alone again. I see you now awakened by the glowing sunflowers of morning I see you now ripped again by the vicious sting, disappointment. I see you now wondering why she doesn't say the name. I see you now on a mission to capture all the beauty of the day. I see you now turning gray skies into more than gold. I see you now part of her the history of autumn leaves. I see you now sacrificed flesh, but not enough to return. I see you now talking to faces that could never see your face. I see you now holding canvas that would change your fortunes far too late. I see you now desperate like a beggar. I see you now hiding humiliated in your room. I see you now painting a canvas with more lights that it doesn't come. I see you now the original outsider. I see you now the guiding light of the overlooked. I see you now the hope of distant death. I see you now gun in hand, with wounds more tragic than fresh melting snow. I see you now ever
0: now, for love. Beautiful, oh. and that's from that anthology of poems that are connected to Vincent Van Gogh in different ways. I love that. That's what a beautiful piece that you shared, and that whole idea of that anthology. Yeah, yeah
1: very. Yeah. I was happy about the anthology. I, I really care a lot about being off, but. He was an outsider, you know, I'm an outsider, so I relate a lot with him. And, uh, yeah, but I'll move on to the next poem. So, this poem's four years later. I hadn't seen her for four years, and we drank cocktails in a backstreet street bar, her choice, and talked. She told me about this female superhero that had mental issues with strength excess, but still functioned well. was quite amazing. As the night went on, we went back to her place and kept drinking. I noticed she was popping pills and she told me she was taking a lot of them now. The pills and the alcohol were the only things keeping her going. She'd been in hospital just two months ago after another terrible of attempt. I then thought about her just four years earlier. She was so intelligent and good-looking. Most guys would have loved to be with her, including me. So now her skin was pale and bruised and her joints heavily swollen from the medication. And even her face really didn't look the same. I left her apartment shortly after. She started saying things that really didn't make any sense and I didn't want to stick around to see what would happen next. The following day, she sent me a message accusing me of trying to sleep with her. I just ignored it. and really hoped that the superhero she told me about wasn't a comic book character, but actually her.
0: Uh, uh, That's very touching. It's a lot of hard stuff people go through, that's for sure. And... That speaks unfortunately to a lot of people in terms of what, what sometimes doesn't happen right after help that they try to get in hard times. Ooh, we are, we are at that wind up time, Brenton Booth. We have had this wonderful conversation, lots of poetry, shouts out to Epic Rights Press and Wolfgang Karsten's for the connection and for publishing your work. The Resurrections of a Sunflower Anthology, which people can find. Lots of good stuff and more coming. And I want to to remind our listeners. So we've been talking and you've been listening with Brenton Booth coming to us from Australia. And it's about three o'clock in the morning, his time now. So huge thanks to you, Brenton, for being willing to do this recording at such an unusual time for recording. so, so much great stuff that you shared in terms of being willing to talk about your craft, as well as sharing so much poetry. So thank you.
1: Oh, thanks for having me on. It's uh, been an honor to be on the show. I listen to you a lot. And it's uh, always great. Always thank great you. Hearing.
0: And thanks to Daniel Smith, who produces the show, because that's what lets you listeners hear this. So remember to check out Brenton Booth, a poet in Australia with lots of great stuff. Buy some books, look for him, follow him, see what happens next. And perhaps in his travels at some point, you'll cross paths, who knows? And so long to our listeners. Bye-bye.